Today on the podcast, we talk about sharing and oversharing. What types of information are states sharing about people who get the new COVID vaccines? As it turns out, a lot. We get into how this squares with medical privacy laws. And we hear about two appellate cases that share one thing in common. Someone tries to hire a hitman while they're sitting in jail. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the new legal podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. Each week on this show, we'll highlight some of the best legal reporting coming out of our newsroom and also bring you, let's say, some of the more notable legal documents from the many, many dockets that we are looking at. But first, let's take a look at the biggest legal news stories of the week. The Supreme Court is taking a hard look at the validity of the so-called Patent Death Squad. The Patent Trial and Appeal Board earned that colorful nickname by invalidating more than 2,000 patents since Congress created it in 2011. At oral argument this week, the court's conservative justices seemed to indicate they thought this board has too much power since its decisions aren't reviewed by a presidentially appointed official. The new cannabis firm that touts rapper Jay-Z as an executive can now tout some very high-powered in-house lawyers. The parent company, a vertically integrated cannabis firm based in California, just brought on Colin Brown and Judith Schwimmer, two big-name cannabis attorneys with backgrounds in big law. In addition to having these two attorneys, it reported $381 million in cash for acquisitions and Jay-Z as its chief visionary officer. The parent company also has investments from several other musicians, including Yo Gotti, Rihanna, Meek Mill, and DJ Khaled. And finally, jury selection begins on Monday in the trial of the former Minneapolis police officer accused of killing George Floyd. The trial will already be one of the most closely watched in years, but it could get even more complicated if the Minnesota Court of Appeals agrees to make a last-minute change. Prosecutors want the Court of Appeals to reinstate a charge of third-degree murder against the officer, Derek Chauvin, who is already facing second-degree murder and manslaughter charges. The appeals court said it would try to rule quickly on the matter, given that the trial starts in a matter of days. You can find special coverage of that trial starting next week at our sister podcast, Uncommon Law. Definitely go check that out. That's the podcast, Uncommon Law. So you've probably all heard about HIPAA. That's the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Since it became the law of the land 25 years ago, it struck fear deep into the heart of the medical community. HIPAA can trigger hefty fines or even jail time for the disclosure of patient information without their consent. Well, now fast forward to today. We're in the midst of a pandemic, and we need to keep track of who's getting vaccinated, where, and with which shot. And according to a story published on Bloomberg Law this week, boy, is there a lot of patient information being disclosed. Bloomberg Law reporters Porter Wells, Jake Holland, and Jackie Lee found that states administering the vaccine are sharing with the CDC data on vaccine recipients, including, but not limited to, their names, date of birth, race, ethnicity, and home addresses. How is this legal? I spoke with Jackie about that, and she explained that in an emergency, HIPAA all of a sudden gets a lot more flexible. Yes, HIPAA does protect protect your information, but even when we're not in pandemic times, there are more flexibilities for providers to share information 
without a patient's consent if it's to help the public good or, you know, to boost public health. So for example, a provider could share information about a patient if it could help prevent the spread of a communicable disease. So when it comes to COVID, that means that there is more flexibility providers have to share, let's say, COVID-19 test results if sharing that information is to prevent the spread of a disease. Um, you know, that being said, the general rule is providers have to share as little information as possible um, in order to get that job done. So they can't give everything up that they know about this patient, but just enough that they can, you know, prevent that spread of a disease. Okay, so let's talk about what information the CDC is getting from the states. Um, it sounds like it's quite a bit, uh, uh, especially for people who have been vaccinated or who have gotten the first shot of the vaccinations. What, what are the states giving the CDC? The, the CDC is asking for a lot. They're asking for names, date of birth, home addresses, gender, um, you know, racial and ethnic identities. Uh, so they're asking for a lot from states. Now, whether or not the states actually give them that much that's up to the states, ultimately. Um, and some states have decided that they're not going to give all of that information to the CDC. But there is a lot of information, a lot of um, specifically a lot of identifiable information that states are encouraged to give to the CDC, such as, you know, names and home addresses are particularly, you know, identifiable information. And why does the CDC want this information? I mean, I could think of a few reasons, but why is it um, saying, you know, we, we really need all of this data on people who get the shots. The biggest reason the CDC wants all that data is because they're trying to track who's getting the vaccine. And that sounds, you know, kind of big brother scary-ish, but they're doing that because they want to ensure equitable distribution at the end of the day. Um, so they need to make sure that, you know, vaccine is going to the right places and that it's you know, going to all different types of communities. Um, and, you know, the research now is already showing that, you know, minority communities are less likely to get vaccine shipments than white communities are. So this is already a problem that they're having. And so that's why this sort of data is especially important to continue gathering and to get more of, you know, and along with the equitable distribution part, there's also a desire to kind of track our, the goal of herd immunity when have we reached it? How close are we? You know, what other, you know, health policies or measures do we need to put in place to, to stem the tide of COVID? And so understanding how many people are vaccinated and where they're vaccinated and all the demographics around populations that are vaccinated helps to make those larger health policy decisions. And it's worth noting that the CDC and the states are taking some measures to try to protect some level of privacy of the, uh, you know, of patients. Um, can you talk about this? I get the sense they've set up some kind of clearinghouse, and that's um, that's one way that they can kind of anonymize the data. I, I'm, I'm really interested in learning more about that. Yeah, that's a, the best way to describe it is, you know, there's kind of like a, a filter system. So first, all these states are going to send data to the CDC, and it's initially going to go through this filter where they pull out redundant information or, you know, data entered twice, um, things like that. And then it's going to get dumped into this large pool of data where you have all this information, you have identifiable information like, you know, names or addresses, and then um, information that might not necessarily be identifiable like race or, you know, some other type of demographic information. Um, and so some of that information is going to get pulled from that larger 
clearinghouse of data and it's going to get scrubbed and it's going to be redacted. And so the identifiable parts of it are going to move on down the pipeline to other branches of the database that other officials can use to make decisions about, you know, do we need to increase supplies in this certain place or do we need to, um, you know, make some other sort of health measure change. And so there are people that are going to have access to that large pool of data that has literally everything in it that has not been scrubbed and that has identifiable data. But it's kind of like, think of, you know, how you see the Pentagon from the top and it has all these different walls kind of separating different sections of the Pentagon. That's kind of how this data is going to work in that some people are going to have access to certain sections, but not all of it. And very few people are going to have you know, are going to have access to all of that information at once. That makes a lot of sense. Um, but of course, you know, just the existence of this database uh, or the existence of this clearinghouse makes it possible that there could be a data breach at some point, either an accidental data breach or a malicious uh, breach. Um, what are the, the potential consequences for that uh, if that could happen, I mean, w- what lot kind of liability are we talking about here in terms of both the states that collect the data and the CDC that ma- you know receives and manages it? So there are different tiers of you know how bad you've messed up essentially, and if you've messed up, you know if they can show negligence, which is the worst, you know you've really screwed up and you didn't take any risk mitigation measures or anything like that, the fines are higher. And if it's bad enough, you can actually charge someone criminally and people can go to jail for it. So it it really is kind of a, a vast array of, of the types of um, fines and consequences that come with HIPAA violations. So what CDC is doing is they are, you know, pairing with the company Oracle and they have audits that they're going to do. And so that's the biggest part of HIPAA that companies tend to focus on is that prevention measure, because, you know, once you've had that breach, it's really hard to get that information back. And then, you know, I want to get back to something you mentioned a little bit earlier, which is that, uh, you know, the states are giving CDC this data, but the states don't have to give CDC all the data that it's asking for. And as you reported, there are some states uh, that have decided, no, I don't really feel like um, giving CDC all of this data. And those are the two biggest states in the country, California and New York. Um, Can you talk about those two states and why they decided to kind of scale back what they share? I think there is a general um, fear about giving too much information to the federal government that can be used against their citizens. So I think in in, specifically in, in New York, Um, the governor said that we're not going to give any information that could, you know, at all identify people who are undocumented. And so the big fear there was obviously you don't want to have, you know, you don't want to expose undocumented people to potential backlash for getting vaccinated because that's a big fear in that community, understandably so. Um, And with California, their general, you you know, negotiated um, data sharing agreement is that California is not going to give any identifiable information to the federal government. So they'll give, you know, general things, but they're not going to give really specific names, things like that. So those two states are essentially trying to prevent, you know, any abuse from the federal government with the data that they would give them. So they're going to try to pull back a little bit on what they're going to give. Okay. And then finally, let's take a big step back here and ask, you know, is, does this mean that HIPAA is working or HIPAA is not working? Because I could see arguments on 
on both sides. On the one hand, you could uh, see people saying, what's the point of HIPAA if it you know, allows uh, my state to share all this personal information with someone else without my consent? If, why do we have HIPAA if that's even allowable? On the other hand, I could see someone saying, no, this is actually HIPAA working the way it was supposed to because of, you know, this. these are the flexibilities that are built into it that allow public health officials to respond to an emergency. Um, what do you think about that? Is this, uh, you know, HIPAA working the way it was supposed to or not really? I mean, you're going to find people who could argue both sides. You know what I mean? Just like you've done. And some people feel strongly one way or the other. Um, you know, I've been looking a lot at the privacy aspect for health information, you know, throughout this pandemic. And my general feeling is that privacy is super important, of course. Um, but I do think that especially now during a pandemic, you kind of have to balance the greater good with your personal privacy. I think that, you know, the CDC is is taking the necessary risk mitigation you know, measures. And so I think that HIPAA is working as it was built to work right now in that you have a broader general protection. You have po- different various levels of pockets of protection, depending on what state you're in. Um, you know, HIPAA is actually like peak federalism, you know what I mean? Because of that. So I, but I do think that right now HIPAA is working as it was built and is flexible enough right now that it's allowing providers to, you know, have a little less liability and be able to work their way through a pandemic. Whether or not we're going to see any of these flexibilities become permanent, that's, you know, a whole nother discussion and might, I don't know, necessarily be the best, you know, the best uh, idea when you're not in a pandemic. But I think right now HIPAA is working. All right. Well, uh, Jackie, peak federalism Lee. Thank you for uh, chatting with us here. This was uh, a really interesting conversation. Uh, Jackie Lee covers uh, healthcare for Bloomberg Law. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So we have a team of reporters here at Bloomberg Law that tracks literally hundreds upon hundreds of legal dockets across the country all the time. And as a result, they see some pretty interesting legal documents. So one of our editors on that team, Carmen Castro-Pagan, is here today to talk about two such documents. Today, I'm going to talk about two appeal court opinions that involve some unfortunate events, but these are very wild facts that seem taken out straight from a Law & Order episode. Love Law and Order. So the first one, um, the facts include an inmate who had killed his, his father-in-law and was now plotting to kill his ex-wife. Whoa, that sounds uh, pretty serious. Yes, yes. Also, a contraband cell phone, the dark web, and a Russian bomb maker who turned out to be an FBI undercover agent. Whoa. Okay, I need to know more. While the inmate was in prison, of course, for attempting to kill his ex-wife and actually killing his father-in-law, he used a contraband cell phone to orchestrate a drug dealing conspiracy. But then time passed on and in 2017, he used the contraband cell phone to access the dark web and contact someone who he believed was a Russian bomb maker. 
after a few months negotiating with the Russian bomb maker. I sense there's some air quotes there. <laughs> yeah, he bought uh, what he thought was a mail bomb and arranged with the bomb maker to send the device unarmed to his ex-wife's house. But um, he didn't know that his dark web contact was actually an FBI agent. And of course, he was charged for it. And the case came on appeal because he was saying that the package placed in the mail didn't qualify as an unmailable item under federal law, which the court didn't buy. And un wait, so the, did this case hinge on what you can and can't put in the mail? Is this like a... Yeah. Yes. <laughs> So, of course, on Friday, I saw these facts and I tweeted them out. I took a screenshot and I tweeted them out. And a few minutes after I posted the case, um, Rafi Melkonian, who is a prominent member of the hashtag Appalachian Twitter sphere, pointed me out to another case just like this one from a few years ago. And of course, um, Melkonian said that if you hire a hitman or a bomb guy and you're in prison, they most likely work for the FBI. Just a rule of thumb here. Good advice. I'll remember that. Um, <laughs> of course. Hopefully I won't have need to, to know that fact, but uh, that's interesting. Yes. So, of course, I went ahead and I searched for the other case. It's uh, U.S. v. Gordon. And in this one... A man who hired a hitman to kill his wife, and the hitman ended up being an undercover agent, but hold it, he got caught, and while he was detained awaiting trial for that butch attempt, he went again and hired another hitman to kill the first hitman. So, this, so we're talking about we're talking about hitmanception here. It's like a hitman <laughs> to kill a hitman, like a so this is like ne Russian nesting dolls. Here. This is crazy, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And of course, the second hitman also turned out to be a cop. Because what are the odds? <laughs> well, I, I, it sounds like if you're hiring a a hitman from jail, then the odds are pretty high that that person is not who you you think he or she is. Exactly. Um, so first off, shout out to Appellate Twitter. Thank you for that. Um, can't live without Appellate Twitter. Secondly, it's worth noting that um, not all or not most of the opinions that you read that come across your desk are this exciting. Is that, is that right? It's not like you're just, you know, uh, you know, buried in like spy novel type opinions, right? I mean, I would say that every other week we have some... Some stuff coming that are is it's just too much. It's just like <laughs> like you will have um, crazy facts. You will have um, judges just trying to be funny, just trying to have fun with the opinions, inserting some sentences or some references in there um, that actually make it fun to to read. Well, I can't wait to uh, talk about those other opinions with you and the legal intelligence desk in the weeks ahead. But uh, for now, that was Carmen Castro uh, Pagan, an editor on our legal intelligence desk, telling us about um, some pretty wild uh, hashtag appellate Twitter opinions. <laughs> Thank you, Carmen. It was wonderful as always. Thank you so much, David. That'll do it for today's inaugural episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our executive producer is Josh Block, and our editor is Jessica Coombs. Special thanks to Carmen Castro Pagan and Jackie Lee. 
Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle BLaw. Just, uh, just that, BLaw. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next week. Hi, I'm Laura Carlson, and I'm dropping into your feed to tell you about Prognosis, a new daily show from Bloomberg. Monday through Friday, we'll spend a few minutes with you every afternoon to help you understand life in the time of COVID-19. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So come back every afternoon for our coverage and stay safe.